From Hyde Park United Methodist in Tampa, Florida, I'm Matt Hotho, and this is the Bible Project 2020, a journey to reading the scriptures without fear or frustration. Today's episode is a discussion between McGray de Vega and me about ways to interpret the Bible. The big word for this is hermeneutics, which comes from the Greek word hermeneia, meaning interpretation. Chances are that you've used hermeneutics in your everyday life without realizing it. That case law that you read and interpreted? Hermeneutics. That MRI that you analyzed and then drew a diagnostic from? Hermeneutics. That op-ed piece that you read in the New York Times and thought about? Yep, hermeneutics. Anytime we approach a text or a piece of music and seek to understand that text beyond the letters or images on the page, we are doing hermeneutics. Throughout this discussion with McGray, you will hear each of us quote-unquote riff off of the other, bringing up connections between biblical texts or drawing on stories from outside of scripture to help us interpret scripture. All of this is hermeneutics and helps us be more nuanced interpreters of scripture. The goal of this episode is to help you think about how to read scripture more deeply, to acknowledge that some texts will be foreign to us because they truly are foreign to us, and that there are tools to help us understand those texts. So without further ado, here is our discussion of ways to interpret the Bible. Welcome back, McGray. So when we were brainstorming this episode, I was reminded of something my college New Testament professor talked about often. She called it closing the hermeneutical gap. And what she meant by this was that any serious interpretation of scripture needs to take into account the ways in which we are distant from that text that we are reading. We must begin by thinking about what doesn't make sense to us in the text and figuring out why it doesn't make sense to us. Is there a norm that we don't understand? Is there a reference we don't get? And then we have to think about the things in the text that seemingly do make sense to us, and we have to challenge our assumptions of that. Because the text is foreign to us, and we have to kind of keep that unfamiliarity with the text. If it feels too familiar, chances are we're probably doing something wrong. And we need to realize that the writers of the Bible, especially the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, uh, had different social norms, different scientific norms, different religious norms, uh, different moral norms than us, and that their writings reflected those norms. Any effort to bring the writings of antiquity to bear on the present have to take into account the norms under which the author was operating. Absolutely. The, everything you're offering is very, very rich and I think gets – first of all, gives permission for people to ask the deeper questions that – perhaps instinctively people want to ask, but don't know if they're allowed to in order to maintain their faith. And the reality is that the Bible can handle our questions, first of all. Um, and because it's a collection of so many different voices from so many different cultures, we're allowed to uh, ask it with our own culture and with our own voice. Um, th there are three words that were helpful to me in my seminary training that uh, that helped me sort of sort through what a text is saying in its own terms. Uh, and it's to ask the question, is this text prescriptive or is this text descriptive mm. or is this text predictive? And uh, just to think about those three words, first of all, is it prescriptive? Is this text telling me that I should do to the letter exactly what the people did? So an example might be Jesus saying, love your neighbor as yourself. Right. That would be a a prescriptive text for sure. Um, 
Now, how about Samson killing thousands of Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey? Is that text prescriptive? Uh, I doubt it. At least I hope not. Uh, Is the text descriptive? Meaning, is the text simply describing the condition of human beings or describing the fullness of who God is? or describing the complexity of what it means uh, to be alive. Uh, uh, instead of telling us we have to do what the text is telling us to do, is it simply making an observation about, about human beings and God and the relationship between the two? Um, and of, often, a lot of those texts are simply doing that. I like to point to the Garden of Eden story um, as being a descriptive text that the decisions that Adam and Eve made describe the kinds of decisions we make because of uh, the human condition. And uh, is it possible that the text is predictive, meaning if A, then B. If this happened, then this will happen. Um, or if, if this is the case, then God will do this. Um, and oftentimes the text will say, that because of uh, the way human beings are, God will fulfill God's promise to do X, Y, and Z. Or if we see this uh, condition in the world, then this will happen. And I, oftentimes that's, that's the case as well. It's not necessarily summoning us to do something, and it's, it's more than just describing the way things are. It is telling us that there's forward momentum in certain texts, that it's pointing us toward a future in which something will happen. And a lot of the texts do that as well. So I, I, I often fall back on those three words just as a way of helping me discover um, how to interpret a text. So if we come up across a text that, uh, that is descriptive, mm-hmm. um, let's mm-hmm. say love your neighbor as yourself, yeah. all right? Yep. We can just take that, boom, straight out of scripture. That's a red, that's red letter right there. We can just go, boom, that was Jesus' words, love your neighbor as yourself, right? Right. But if we want to go deeper behind that, mm. we might want to ask ourselves, mm-hmm. is Jesus quoting something? Mm. And this is where we can use um, a little bit of hermeneutics to think about where else have we heard that mm-hmm. phrase, love your neighbor as yourself, and if we think really hard, we might actually find two different examples of where that's used. One is in um, the book of Leviticus, right? It's in the holiness code where you're told to love your neighbor. Mm-hmm. But then you also have it in Deuteronomy mm. as a part of the Shema. Really good. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So we already know just with that little bit of information that Jesus is clearly dipping his toe mm-hmm. into a tradition that's bigger than him and precedes him. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, Another example might be the baptism of Jesus, where Mark says that when uh, Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were torn apart. For Mark, in the way he's describing the baptism, uh, there was something about the water and the power of God revealed in that water that was earth-shattering. It was cosmic. And that also is is tying into a lot of Hebrew tropes, a lot of Hebrew uh, images of what water was uh, in the ancient uh, Hebrew world. Um, the, the flood story, the parting of the Red Sea, uh, the parting of the Jordan, whenever water is, dis- certainly in Leviathan, the way the sea mm-hmm. monster is described in Job, the water is almost personified with this cosmic mystical power through which God's power and grace is revealed. And so um, 
when Jesus was baptized, Mark wants to tell us it wasn't just a bath. It wasn't just a little sprinkling. It wasn't just a little photo opportunity or an excuse to have a party. It was cosmic, earth-shaking. It was cataclysmic in the way that it introduced a new reality, a new kingdom. Um, and so when he says the heavens were torn apart, I mean, that, that really means something to Mark uh, because it's tied into uh, so many rich, deep um, images that preceded it for thousands of years. Yeah, and so if we think about the heavens being torn apart, I'm just riffing off you here, McGregor. We yeah. might just go back and forth on this. This is fun. <laughs> okay. So the heavens torn apart in Mark is an allusion to Genesis 1. Absolutely. Where God creates the heavens and the earth, and he takes this formless void, mm-hmm. and he separates the waters of the formless void. So here's some real fun hermeneutical stuff. One thing you can do when you're trying to bridge this gap mm-hmm. is put yourself in the worldview yeah. of an ancient Near Eastern. If you've been to the Holy Land, you've got a leg up on some people. But if you just look at a map of the ancient Near East, Palestine, Israel area, right to the west of everything Mm. is this big sea called the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. And as we know, sadly, because of some of the stories about migrants trying to cross it, it's a very violent sea. Winds will sweep up on it and massive waves will grow on it. Well, imagine 4,000 years in the past, you're sitting out on this beach with your son, with your daughter, with your family by a campfire, and you're looking at that water and you're just thinking about it. And you've heard a story back in your day about how God created the earth from that stuff, right? God took that water, that chaos, that craziness out there. There may be claim members of your own family who are out there fishing or doing something. Mm -hmm. People who haven't returned from those waters, God tamed those waters. And from those very waters in Genesis 1, created the heavens and the earth, not by creating the heavens as we think of today, by creating Pluto and Saturn and all those sorts of things, not in their mind. We know that today, that yes, that's what God did. But in their minds, God literally took that water that had enveloped everything and said, hey, water, some of you, you're staying up top. Mm -hmm. Some of you are staying down below. Mm -hmm. And in between here, I'm going to build this safe place Mm -hmm. where my people can live, where they can worship me. Mm -hmm. And that is the Genesis 1 story that you get of God creating the heavens and the earth. Mm -hmm. But take that a step back even further that's a story that's riffing off of a story that would have been going around in the circles of the ancient Near East called the Enuma Elish. It was a Babylonian creation epic about how the earth was created. And in the story, these two gods, Marduk and Tiamat, get into a fight. And Marduk kills Tiamat and from her corpse creates the heavens and the earth. So not only did the ancient Hebrews borrow a story from the Babylonians, but they reimagined it. Get this, get this. This is going to blow your mind if you think about the Old Testament as a violent Old Testament. Uh They reimagined it in a non-violent way Mm. to have a God that wants to create safety and protection, not through violence, but through sheer control. Take the chaos and separate it into the waters above and the waters below and the safe space in between. Absolutely. And if you follow that theme all throughout, certainly the Old Testament, you see how not only is the sea personified with this monstrous kind of menacing force, but how God controls that that sea time and time again. That's why the parting of the Red Sea, the yes. parting of the Jordan River, the God being stronger than Leviathan uh, is so important uh, that, that as menacing as 
the sea is, God is still in control. And since we're on the topic of topography and geography, you, you can follow that same kind of idea all throughout the major milestone moments in the life of Jesus, when he's tempted in the wilderness. You can take a look at wilderness experiences all throughout the Old Testament and see some recurring themes about how God is present and nurturing and providing even in the times of the wilderness. You take a look at the mountaintop. That's a significant image in the ministry of Jesus and a huge recurring image all throughout the Old Testament. What happens on the mountaintop? God is revealed and God shows up on the mountaintop. So a lot of these interbiblical connections uh, really do help us amplify uh, uh, all of these stories. And if we, as we're reading through the Bible next year, uh, take note of things like location, setting, what those settings might have meant to those folks. Um, and as as you mentioned, Matt, um, don't be afraid to make connections to uh, non-biblical historical stories like uh, the Babylonian stories, like the Epic of Gilgamesh, and realize that those kinds of images uh, meant a lot to the ancient Israelites. And so it shouldn't be surprising that they used those same images when they were describing their understanding of God. So we've talked a lot about intra-biblical interpretation. Right. So that's where we say, okay, um, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. Let's look at where that's used in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And we've talked about sort of non-biblical interpretation, sort of um, historical interpretation. You could say where we're looking at other writings from the area, era, trying to help us understand maybe what, what might have been informing that writer. Here's something in our kind of closing couple of minutes that I want to think about. You're going to read things, again, especially in the Old Testament, where it's going to sound like you're hearing the same thing twice. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yep. And it's going to be a little confusing. Here's, here's a little nugget I just want to put in your head, and I can't take credit for this. It's this guy named Jeffrey Stackert, mm. who's a very intelligent scholar, said this. He said, one way to think about the Old Testament is that one of the guiding principles for the writers was the idea of maximal preservation, mm. okay? Mm. So let's say you have a family story that's been passed around your family for years, but your dad tells it way differently than your grandpa ever did. Well, that doesn't mean that your grandpa was wrong or your dad was wrong. And Jeffrey Stackert would say for the Israelites and for the compilers of the Old Testament, it was just as important for them to maintain grandpa's story and dad's story side by side or sometimes woven together, not because they were trying to trick us, but because they valued both stories. And that was more important than absolute truth. So you're going to find that, especially throughout Genesis, you're going to find it in Genesis 1 through 3. There's two creation stories. Mm. And they don't agree with each other. One, one pitfall of biblical criticism in more conservative circles is they try to harmonize things. Mm-hmm. If you hear someone talking about wanting to harmonize scripture, don't run away, but be a little skeptical. Mm-hmm. Because what they're trying to do is take dad's story and grandpa's story and make them match right. when there are real clear differences between them because they both experience the same thing differently. Absolutely. The, the, the word, sort of the contemporary word that I like to use to describe that is the word reboot. Uh, I'm a big fan yeah. of the director, J.J. Abrams, who's established himself as a reboot kind of artist, a reboot kind of movie director. So that the recent Star Trek films are reboots of the original. They follow the same essential plot line, but because it's being told to a newer generation, it's, it's using uh, themes, ideas, uh, setting, uh, techniques that, that make the essential meanings more relevant to us 
with with some departures from the original stories. Uh, he certainly did that with The Force Awakens when he rebooted the franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, purists would see a lot of the same kinds of themes, um, but for people who've never watched a Star Wars movie, it was new to them. So I like that the idea that Genesis 2 is a reboot of Genesis 1. I love the idea that the Chronicles is a reboot of Kings. I love the idea that the Gospels are reboots of each other. That that Mark, because yeah. it's the shortest, is likely the most original. And then with Matthew and Luke, they embellished on Luke in order on, on Mark in order to reboot that Jesus story for their particular audiences. And John is the longest one because he's re- rebooting Mark for the widest audience possible. So absolutely, when you see, when you think you've read that story before and you're reading it again in a different book, ask yourself the question. Is this a reboot of the same essential story for a different kind of audience? Um, over and over again, you'll see that in the Bible. I love that way of thinking about it as a reboot. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, just the, the, the one caution we want to give you as you're going through this is, one, Google is not always your friend when it comes to this kind of stuff. Right. There's a lot of easy, pithy answers out there right. that sometimes tend to gloss over really important differences in the text because the person who's writing that is seeking after absolute truth. They might view the Bible as something that has to be um, inerrant. It can't have errors in it. And so two stories that don't completely agree with each other, well, that could be an error that they want to gloss over. And my personal feeling on that, and I think McGray would agree with me, is that those we don't see the Bible as something that has to be inerrant for it to be true. Right. You, uh, ju- you just want to be judicious. There's a We don't need to take all of the Bible literally... Uh, in order to take the Bible seriously. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the other thing is, uh, just watch out for the weird stuff in Barnes & Noble. There's books in there like the Bible Code. Um, I just love this example because I remember coming across it once as when I was much younger, before I knew Hebrew, before I knew Greek, and going, oh my gosh, this guy took the, every letter of the Bible, and you're right, when you connect it like a word search, oh my gosh, Iraq is in the uh, is in the Bible. Ironically, Iraq is in the Bible, not as the word Iraq, but because that's where the whole party happens. But um, you know that there are these current events apparently preordained in Scripture. If you look at the letters of Scripture in the correct way, and that's just absurd because you can't take Greek and just plant it right on top of the English alphabet. Nor can you take Hebrew and definitely not Aramaic and plant it right on top of the English alphabet. Let alone what translation of the what translation are you using? All these questions. Um, so there are some people who do really weird things with the Bible, uh, not because they're trying to deceive you necessarily. They just have a very fundamentally different understanding of what the Bible is and how it's functioning. Okay. I believe the Bible functions best when it's not a puzzle to be solved, but a mystery to stand in awe of something to, to have reverence for, to just look at and go, Oh my gosh, this thing survived. And I would simply add, I love the idea that the Bible is not something uh, like a puzzle to be solved, but a mystery to be revered and to be in awe of, because don't we need more reverence and awe and wonder in our human experience today? Um, Isn't it possible that we uh, need to embrace mystery, uh, particularly in the Bible, so that we have more wow moments, more aha moments? Um, And if your life is a lot like mine, I could use a lot more wonder and a lot more awe and uh, a lot less, um, I've got this all figured out because the reality is we can't and we don't. And the Bible invites us into a, a wondrous experience. And that's that's my hope. I know that that's your hope too, Matt, that people will read this Bible, not only to apply it 
in those texts that are meant to be prescriptive, but to walk away from reading it going, wow, um, I'm a part of this story. There's been thousands of years of people who've been part of this story, and God is still surprising us um, in ways that, uh, that we're not always expecting. That does it for this week's episode. I know it got a bit technical at points, but nevertheless, I hope you found it helpful for beginning this journey. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, now would be a great time to do so. Small groups and devotionals are available at BibleProject2020.com, and we have a Facebook group for discussing the daily readings. Just search Bible Project 2020 on Facebook. We'll be back next week with our first official episode featuring Jim Harnish. Jim Harnish.